All right, how are you guys doing this morning? It's good to see all of you. Uh, for those of you who uh, is your first time, uh, maybe you don't know who I am. My name is Daniel, one of the pastors on staff here at Jubilee. Uh, my wife and I help out with guest services and maybe the overall feel of the weekend. And I'm also a part of the teaching team, so that's why I am up here. And I just want to tell you what an honor it is. I uh, take it uh, very, uh, very seriously uh, that you guys would come and listen. And I believe God's got a good word for each and every one of you. Uh, like you saw on the screen, we're in the middle of a series called Teach Me, and we kicked it off about three weeks ago, and we had Pastor Kate and Pastor Terry do the first two, and they did an absolutely wonderful job. I don't know if you guys saw Terry with his, you know, the pants. I don't even know what you call them. I'm like, I've never seen Terry wear something like that before. But if you haven't seen it, just want to encourage you to, when you get home, to watch him and get all caught up. Uh, But the whole premise of this series was to have you guys ask questions to us, uh, to the pastors, whether it be you wanted light to be uh, shed on, whether you were confused, maybe it was some conversation illusion in it, or you would just thought, hey, you know, is Jesus being contradictory here in the Bible to this and that? And it's been an excellent turnout of these questions to the point where it's challenged us as pastors. So when we're actually preparing our messages, I'm learning stuff. I'm being convicted. I'm being encouraged. And I'm absolutely excited to see what God does with the message uh, that he's put on my heart. Uh, I'll, I'll mention the question, but first I want to read a scripture to you. It's the parable of the 10 virgins in Matthew 25. So would you guys follow along with me, please. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our oil lamps are going out. But the wise answered saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were gone buying, uh, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. And the question was this, can you explain the parable of the bridesmaids from Matthew 25? And how do we make sure that we have enough oil in our lives today? And I don't know if you guys have ever been reading, maybe it's scripture, Bible, a book, um, maybe it's a magazine, you're looking at art, whatever it is, but there's just this initial uh, leap in your soul, your heart, your spirit of like this attraction. And this is what happened with this uh, question for me. There was, like I said, plenty of questions that make plenty of great messages. And, and, and the Lord just was like, no, nope, this is the one, you're doing this one, you're doing this one, you're doing this one. And I said, okay, then I will commit myself to this. I will full-heartedly commit myself to this. But what we have to realize is in Hebrews, it says that the word of God is living and active, meaning that you could read a scripture, you could read a parable, and I could read it a separate time, separate day, 100 years later, and I could get a completely different definition of what it is. And the reason the Lord has made the Bible active for us is so it can push us, encourage us, because each of us are in different positions with our walk in the Lord. So he uses those things. So most theologians, most commentaries would say that this is a representation, the 10 virgins is a representation of the the church at the end times in Revelation. 
That's what they would say it. And I was reading this and I felt like the Lord just put on my heart, Daniel, I don't want you to talk about revelation. I don't want you to talk about the end times, but I have some nuggets for you. And I have some things that I want to show you in this. So what he did is to just keep reading it. So I just kept reading it. And I just kept reading it. And I just kept reading it. And I believe the Lord has something for each and every one of you today. So would you join me in prayer real quick? Jesus, you are so good. We lift your name up and we thank you just, just for the opportunity to come as a family, a church family and friendship and relationship. I pray that you would promote that. I pray that you would guide each word that comes from my mouth. I pray that you would guide each step with purpose for each person in this room, Lord. We just love you. Pray for an anointing to come over this message, Jesus. Let what's been spoken today be tattooed to their hearts imprinted on their souls. Lord, you are good. So in Jesus' name we say, amen. So the first thing I felt like the Lord said to me is, Daniel, is being ready enough. Is being ready enough. So we have these 10 virgins, okay? All of them had the initial oil for their lamps, right? All of them had that, okay? All of them were virgins, so they saved themselves for the bridegroom, okay? And then all of them fell asleep. The only difference between the two is that the five wise got extra oil and put it in a flask. See, I think that the Lord said this, Daniel, we have a lot of ready people in the church, but not a lot of prepared people in the church. And you might be asking, well, Daniel isn't ready and prepared the same thing. I would say it this way. Anybody ever play sports, whether it be collegiate, whether it be in high school, peewee, whether you've been in a band, like I'm always ready to play a game. That's the best part. That's the funnest part. You know, you work to get to that game because it's the most exciting. But if I'm not preparing, if I'm not practicing throughout the week, when it becomes game time, I'm not going to know my blitzes. I'm not going to know my coverages. I'm not going to know what hole to run in. I'm not going to know the cadences. I'm not going to know any of those things. So I think there's a huge difference between being ready and being prepared. And I believe if you asked yourself without any interruption, if you asked yourself deep down without other people's opinions and you said, Lord, am I ready or am I prepared? What would you say? Would you be one of the five wise or one of the five foolish? I remember this story. Uh, I went to YWAM. It's a youth with a mission. It's a missionary school. And uh, this was uh, eight, nine years ago. And it's where I met my wife. So I'm going to tell you a little bit of the story of how we met, which this is crazy. So she went to this church. She graduated from Valor. I graduated from Thunderidge. And then she moved away after her graduation to Texas. And it just so happened that we decided that we would go to the exact same campus. There's over 150 locations of YWAM to the exact same class at the exact same time of the year. And it just so happened that I met her. And I first saw her and I was like, oh my gosh, Lord Jesus, like, don't let her look at me. Just let her listen to my personality. Like, let her understand me. Like, let her, let her be blind to my looks. No. And I, I, it was, I was head over here, like instantly. I was like, oh my gosh. Like, I, I legitimately started praying. Like, please let, let me marry. Like the first day I met her. And it just so happened that night, I have a dream that I'm going to marry her. And the dream went like this. I, I jump out of an airplane. Like, if you know me, I hate airplanes. So like people are like, would you ever go skydiving? I'm like, it's hard enough to get me in a plane rather than to jump out of a plane. So absolutely not. But I'm in a plane 
And I jump out and I have a parachute and the, and the ceremony is like on a beach and Holly's there in her dress like this waiting for me. And I come in like James Bond, like, you know how like he just slides down and goes, Doosh, the parachute flies and you just walk up. So I grab her hands and then we go into the ceremony and I, and I wake up and I'm like, Lord, what is this? What are you saying to me? And, and he goes, you're going to marry this woman and it's going to come fast. You're going to marry this woman and it's going to come fast. But it just so happens that day, our very first day of actually teaching in class work, that they were talked about prophecy. And the guy says, there's three things that you don't prophesy about. You don't talk about marriage, kids, or death. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what do I do? <laughs> like, so I, I, that night I take the Lord, Lord, uh, what do I do in this situation? What do I do? And he goes, he goes, Daniel, you need to keep it right here right now. Okay. So I decided, yes, I won't tell her about that, but it didn't stop me from pursuing her. It didn't stop me from pursuing. And it just so happened there was a miracle and she started to pursue me. I was like, yes, yes. And I was seriously blown away. It was miraculous. Jesus is so good. Thank you, Lord. And, and so to the point that we start, you know, to, to date, but we're the thing is, the number one rule at YWAM is you can't date. They literally, like it's, YWAM stands for young women after men. Like that's what they say. That's like the running joke of YWAM. And so the number one rule, you can't date. And they start to see us like we're dating, but we're not officially dating, right? We're going to restaurants, going to the beach, hanging out, talking. And then it comes to the place where they have to address it. And they address Holly like, hey, sweetie, you need to just, you know, back up a little bit with Daniel. And they address me by like a reprimand, like, you're the man, you need to, I'm like, wait a second. It takes two to tango. Okay. Like it's not just me. Uh, so I get this and I go home and I'm like, Lord, like, I feel like I'm missing my chance on my dream woman. And he tells me, Daniel, you want three things. One, you need to respect the authority set before you. So I said, okay. Two, you need to start praying over her and your marriage. And then three, I want you to start writing letters for her. So I said, okay. So we backed up and there was this distance and I started doing these things, praying for her, writing her letters, okay? And then we get to outreach. She's in Ireland, I'm in Israel. And they loosen up a little bit, like, because, you know, you, you build friendships, so they let you talk a little more. So I reached out to her and started talking again and developing that. And it's just like this distance. We long for each other. So it came to the culmination of the end of, of YWAM in graduation, the, the second you graduate, you're allowed to date. And I was like, the second I graduate, I'm going to ask her out. So it's like, like the music, graduate, Holly, you want to go out? She said, yes, thank God. And we went to Lava Lava Beach Club that night because we were in Hawaii and it was a um, very near and dear restaurant on the beachfront. And I was able to tell her that night, I go, hey, do you remember when they said that we need to back off and we need to respect that? And I, she said, yes. And I said, during that time, I felt like the Lord said, to start praying over you. I didn't say over marriage yet, but because that would freak her out. I didn't want to run it. And I said, praying over you. And here's some letters that I've written to you. And then here is also some scripture that I've been reading that I felt like the Lord has said for you specifically. And to this day, I believe that the Lord did something there and sped up our relationship because I was obedient in doing those things. See, there's the, here's the thing. I could have just waited until after. I could have just waited, but instead I was actively waiting. I was preparing for the future. I was preparing for her. See, church, we have a lot of ready people, but not a lot of prepared people. And it breaks Jesus' heart 
And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that if, you, if you're not prepared, you're not going to heaven. If you ask Jesus in your heart, if you profess that he is Lord and Savior, he died on the cross for your sin and raised from the dead, your passport is stamped and you're going to heaven. That is what it says biblically, but you're selling yourself short. That's not, God doesn't want you to just stop there. God wants you to continue. So I believe the, the whole premise of this parable is not to be just ready, but to be prepared. So now I want to kind of go to list, how do we stay prepared? How do we stay vigilant? I felt like the Lord said this to me, Daniel, um, that, that they need to understand what I did on the cross. See, when we're so far removed from something that happened 2,000 years ago, we almost start to think like it's fictitious, like it's a character, it's a Bible character. Jake a few weeks ago had a picture of Jesus and it's like this flowing hair and it's like this, it's, it's turned into a cartoon to us. It's funny because we don't struggle with seeing him as Lord, but we struggle with seeing him as man. And 2,000 years ago, they struggled with seeing him as Lord and now, and they didn't struggle seeing him as man. Isn't that crazy how that works? So what the Lord said, Daniel, I want you to talk about what I did on the cross. And when something's so far removed, we start to see these things and it kind of loses the gravity, the validity of everything that he did for us. And then we have the church for millennia and centuries start arguing about who Jesus is. Jesus is Lord, absolutely. Jesus is judge, absolutely. Jesus is grace, absolutely. And they start to argue no, Jesus is all judge, right? Jesus is all grace. And there starts this pendulum right here. So really it should be costly grace and it should be conviction. But when man gets in, intervened in the church, this is what happened. Conviction turns into condemnation and costly grace turns into cheap grace. So we go through the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, and the 1900s, and we have this generation that rises up and tells the younger generation, you can't drink. You can't smoke, you can't dance, you can't gamble, you can't do these things, you can't do all that. It doesn't say that in the Bible that you can't do it. It says do it in moderation. But when man comes in, they make it absolute. They want to be the judge. So it turns from conviction to condemnation. And then you have this other side, this younger generation, that this is the, the, the uh, condemnation side and this is the, the grace side. And then you get, and it starts turning because they're sick of the older generation telling you can't do this. You're going to hell because you drink. You're going to hell because you gambled. You're going to hell because you danced. See, that's condemnation. But right here is the perfect, when we, can, when we can understand that it is conviction and costly grace. See, our grace should drive us to conviction. We shouldn't, be convicted because of just the flippant grace. We should understand what he did on the cross for our sins. And because of that, we are convicted. And it continues to move and grow into the pendulum of my generation and the, the 90s, the early 2000s, and where we're at now, where people are so flippant about grace. And they justify it by saying this, Lord, forgive me. So they live their lives regardless of what the Bible says, regardless of how Jesus told us to live our lives, and they justify it by saying, Jesus, forgive me. I have friends that call themselves Christians, Jesus followers, but they live a life completely in contradiction of what the Bible says. And they feel okay in their heart by just saying, forgive me. See, that's cheap grace. That's cheap grace, and really what it does, it's a slap in the face to God and to Jesus and what they did for us. 
See, we were lost, but now we're found. We were on a path to hell, but now we're on a path to heaven. We were hopeless, but now we have hope. We were dead, and now we're alive because of that. And when you dumb down and convolute what he did on Calvary, you're just, it's cheapening the grace. It's cheapening the act that he did for you. He didn't have to do it. He chose to do it because he loves us. He loves us. That's cheap in grace. And we as the church, we cannot be people that just cheap. I'm guilty of it. And I know I'm not the only one in here. It's so easy when a culture just tells you to live your life. However you live it, it's okay. If it's sin, just ask for forgiveness. It's taking advantage of this grace that the Lord gave us. We should be living from that grace. And because of that, we should be convicted in the way that we live our lives. Have you guys ever heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer? He's a a pastor uh, in, in, in Germany in the 1930s and the 40s. And do you guys know what happened in Germany in the 30s and 40s? World War II, the Nazi regime. And he actually came and visited America in the 30s. And his best friend there was an African-American pastor. And he loved him. He was like, he loved the African-American church, the excitement behind it. But what he noticed is that they had less of a voice. They had less of a voice. So he goes back to Germany. Who didn't have any voice in Germany? The Jews. So Dietrich is on the streets. He's in the church saying, no, what the Nazis are doing is completely wrong. They've made up their own theology. The Nazis called themselves Christians, guys. So they made up their own theology, their own grace to fit them, to justify what they were doing. And Dietrich saw this and he goes, you are wrong. What you're doing is not ethical. What you're doing is against the Bible. And he wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship in 1937. 1937, and because he was preaching these things, because he was getting on people saying, you are wrong, you are wrong, he was arrested and put into a concentration camp. I want to read to you a few quotes uh, from his book that he wrote. One is about um, cheap grace, and the other is about costly grace. So he says this, cheap grace means grace sold on the market like cheap jack wares. The sacraments, the forgiveness of sin, and the consolation of religion are thrown away at cut prices. Grace is represented as church inexhaustible treasury from which she showers blessing with generous hands without asking questions or fixing limits. Grace without price, grace without cost, the essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance, and because it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing." Since the cost was infinite, the possibilities of using and spending it are infinite. And there's parts in here that that talks the good part of grace, right? But then there's parts where it starts to talk the churches. It's the inexhaustible treasury of the church. You realize it's not my job as a pastor. It's not the church's job to give you grace. And the church can take advantage of that and manipulate people. See, but when that happens, man convolutes it and we start to go through, no, you have to work for your grace. You got to, it's about reading your Bible every night. It's about reading 15 chapters. It's about praying uh, 10 minutes. It's about doing these things. It's about how hard I work. No, there is nothing that you can do to earn grace. 
The only way we get grace is being given from Jesus to us. You cannot work for it. It's not how good of a person you are. It's not about 15 Hail Marys. It's nothing to do with it. The only way we receive grace is through Jesus and Jesus alone. And that is it. So Dietrich follows up by saying this. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again. The gift which must be asked for. The door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it causes us to follow. It is a grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Guys, we live in an epidemic, and I know COVID is an epidemic, but we live in an epidemic of people just cheapening the grace of Jesus. And we have to change that. If we want to be prepared if we want to be prepared when our bridegroom comes, we have to understand the gravity of what he did on that day for our sins. In Galatians, it says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you into grace of Christ and turning to different gospels, not that there is another one, but there is some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. See, what we've done is we've fallen in the trap. If, if the grace that we read in the Bible doesn't fit in what we need, we change it. Just like the Nazis did, we change it so it fits our lifestyles. So it fits who we are. We should not be doing that. We should be adjusting our lives to what the word says. Not adjusting the word to what our lives do. And how often and how easy is it for us to do that? We have to, if you want to be prepared, church, we have to understand what Jesus did on the cross for our sins. It should drive us to reverence. It should drive us to this respect. See, we've been so far removed that we're like, it's, it's almost like we think we deserve it. We deserve it. We didn't deserve it. We were sinners. We were justified if we were going to go to the judge, we were going to hell. But because of Jesus' selfless act, guys, this should be driving us to our knees in reverence and thankfulness and gratefulness to Jesus saying, thank you. Thank you. We cannot dumb down and make this Calvary and, and this sacrifice that he did into a cartoon. It wasn't a cartoon. This was a man that was perfect that decided to go to the cross because he loved you. He loved you and wanted to spend eternity with you. We have to stop doing that. So I believe the next thing when it comes uh, to being prepared is spiritual perseverance. Uh, there's, there's three stages to a Jewish wedding. 
So they have the engagement, which where the fathers would come in and agree. And then they have the betrothal, where the bride and the groom would make promises to each other. And, and then in that time, the groom would leave and start to build a house for them. Okay, and then after that is the ceremony, the wedding, right? So if you've asked Jesus in your heart, and by definition in this, we're in the betrothal state waiting for the ceremony, right? We're right there waiting, okay? We're waiting for our bridegroom to come and to get us. We're waiting for our Lord to come and to get us. But in that time, what I've noticed is in the time of waiting, we as Christians, we can become very stagnant. Because it's hard to wait, especially in the culture. I mean, everything, we want something immediately. But in that time of waiting, we become stagnant. And it says in the Bible that if you're of this world, the world will love you. But if you're of me, they will hate you. And because I have been persecuted, so will you. So if we're stagnant and there's persecution and there's trials, what's going to happen? We're going to begin to believe what the world is telling us. Maybe Jesus doesn't exist. Maybe the Bible isn't Holy Spirit inspired. Whether the trial be death of a friend or a family member, whether it be of uh, financial trials, whether it be a divorce. See, that's what spiritual perseverance is. Spiritual perseverance is actively, no matter what's happening in your world or around us culturally, I'm staying on the path. I am going forward. That's what spiritual perseverance is. It's persevering no matter what. And it's hard in this culture. It's so hard because we get this this culture that takes these biblical words and twists it and manipulates it and changes the definition of completely opposite of the Bible. So an example, empathy. What empathy, the society tells us empathy is just accept them for whoever they are. Change your values so you can accept them. No, Jesus, this is empathy. I will come down to where you're at and I will love you, but I will not change my values. That's what empathy is. And yet we have this world telling us this is wrong, this is right, this is right, this is right. No, that you can't do. It's hard and yet we still have to persevere and stay the course. How do you know what the course is? It's the word of God. It's not this government telling us what's right and wrong. It's the Lord. It's the Bible telling us what's right and wrong. See, the, the, the government was never supposed to be involved in the church, telling the church what they could and can't do. No, the church was supposed to be involved in the government to tell them, no, this is wrong. This is right. That is what the church is supposed to do. So how do you persevere? I mean, you could look through men and women throughout the entire Bible. David. Daniel, Nehemiah, Jeremiah, Ruth, Esther, all these people had to persevere. All of them stayed the course. You can look at Apostle Paul. He was shipwrecked twice. He was beaten so bad, they thought he was dead and dragged him out of the city and left him. And you know what he did? He got back up and went into the city and continued preaching. That's perseverance. He was stoned. He was imprisoned. He was ridiculed. He was persecuted. Some of his best epistles in the entire Bible are the prison epistles. Because you see a man 
that is in the lowest of lows, but yet he's in the highest of highs because he is with his Lord. Beautiful works of art, the prison epistles. Beautiful. Because it was a man that from the outside, it would look like there was no hope, but from the inside, he was bolted with hope because he knew he, he was in the Lord. And he persevered, he pushed through. That, talk about a hard time to be a Christian then too. I mean, they were literally being crucified. They were being thrown into the lions at the Colosseum. Have we so easily just been so disconnected to perseverance? Church, if you look out the window, they're already starting to persecute. And you may not see it the same as Paul and the, the early Christians, but it's starting. And if you're not persevering, then who is? Because once time, there's going to be a time they come to our door and they tell us, you can't meet, you can't do this. I pray to God that never happens. But if it does, will we just say, okay, and lay down our arms? Because we're so removed from what perseverance is. See, when Jesus said this parable, it was talking about this lamp. It was, it was a struggle to keep a lamp lit. And it's a picture of how your relationship with the Lord looks. It takes work. And now we live this day and age where it's just turn on a light and it goes for, forever. Jesus never attended. There's supposed to be a struggle. There's supposed to be a fight. There's supposed to be perseverance in our relationship with the Lord. And are we persevering? Are we pushing through? Are we standing for the truth? Or are we giving in to what society is telling us? Church, I know this can sound convicting. Um, I, I left last night and I was just like, Lord, is, is, this, is this too harsh? Is this too harsh? And I felt like the Lord said, Daniel, this is the word I gave you to give. And it comes from a position of love. I tell people all the time, my favorite part of my job is the weekends because I get to see you guys. I love you guys. Pray for you constantly. I might not even know you, but I still pray. You're still part of my church family. Guys, this comes from a position of love. In James 1, 2 through 4, it says this. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So what James is saying here is embrace those trials, guys. Because we have, if you have perseverance and you have those trials, embrace it. But don't just be, you don't have to be happy about it. You know, I had, I had a series, I did a message on joy and happiness and the difference between it. Joy is a, is a heart position. Happiness is just happy stance. It's just what's happening immediately. It says be joyous because, be, because of that you will grow in maturity. And because you grow in maturity, you will lack nothing. We've made up this theology in our mind. Because we believe in Jesus, we won't have trials. It's the exact opposite. And it's not that the Lord doesn't want to protect you and watch over you and bless you. He does want to do those things. But because we follow him, because he was persecuted, we will also be hated and we will also be persecuted. But we must persevere. We must persevere. I heard it this way. 
A spiritual uh, perseverance like Paul's doesn't happen accidentally, and it doesn't happen overnight, and it doesn't happen by sitting on the sidelines. A spiritual perseverance comes by trials, by bearing fruit, by faithfulness, and by holding strong to the words uh, and love of Jesus that won't allow our burdens to become too heavy to keep us from following him. Do we have that spiritual perseverance? You know, I want to say as a pastor that like if I had to go through what Paul went through, like what, could I do it? I want to say yes, but you really never know until, you know, the gun's pointed at your face how you're going to react. You know what I love about, one of my favorite things about preparing messages, and I said this earlier, is as I'm preparing it, I'm learning and the Lord is convicting me. So I'm preparing it and I'm just, I get on my face, Lord, forgive me. Like, there's so much that I can learn. There's so much that I can work on. But I do it because I love you and I want to grow with you. We have to have that spiritual perseverance. The next thing I want to talk to you about, it's a perfect segue into this. So the, the, I'll say the point is going to be longing for the Lord. Longing for the Lord. But I, I want to get into uh, the representation of the oil first. So if you look throughout the entire Bible, uh, the Holy Spirit is a representation of oil. Throughout the entire Bible, that's always been the representation of the Holy Spirit. So we have, like I said at the beginning, we have 10 virgins who all had the oil at the beginning. And if it's a representation of the Holy Spirit, then I would say it's an experience. So we had all 10 that had an experience with the Holy Spirit. And then the five foolish were like, okay, that's good. The five wise went back and got more. And I felt like the Lord told me to ask you guys, are we living on experience from far ago? Are we living on an experience that maybe uh, it happened at college, a VBS, a YWAM? Maybe it was a camp. Maybe it was the Holy Spirit worship weekend. Maybe it was a church event. Maybe it was our weekend services. And we experienced the Holy Spirit. But what the story is telling us is that if we are wise and if we want to be prepared, then we need to go back. We can't just be satisfied with an experience that happened a week ago even. And eventually, guys, the flame is going to go out if you're just burning on one experience from long ago. So what makes us want to do that? What makes us want to experience that? It's a longing. Where are the men and women in the church that long for their Lord? That aren't satisfied with the one-time event, that aren't satisfied with what happened last week, but they want him now. They want him today. Where are the men and women that are being driven to their knees, longing for their Lord? Longing to experience, not even to hear him, but just to be in his presence, just to lay on the ground, just to be driving and just to feel that presence and long for it. Church, we have to be desperate. In the day and age we live, and I know you've heard me say that multiple times because we live in that day and age, a crazy time. Are we longing for the Lord? Are we desperate for his attention? 
In Psalm 42, it says this, as a deer pants for flowing stream, so pants my soul for you. Oh God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. Well, they say to me all day long, where is your God? Church, we live in a culture that's telling us, where is your God? Where is your God? Where is your God? Psalms was written by multiple authors. This one was written by the sons of Korah. And it's a person that's being persecuted, made fun of for their beliefs. And he says, as a deer pants for the flowing streams, panting. That's not just just taking a sip. That means they're tired. And that means they've been running. And they go to the stream and they're panting. And that's how our souls should be for our Lord. Guys, we live in a day where we are constantly fighting for our faith. And it is tiring. And because of that tiredness, we should be desperate and long for our Lord. We should long for him. The time is very serious, church. Are we prepared? Are we prepared? Would you guys join me in communion, please? What I love about communion, for me, it always just, it sets my heart and my soul right in peace. In the Bible, it says that the, that the bread is a representation of his body. And it says, when we do this, to do it in remembrance of him. And just like the crucifixion, when it gets so far removed or you do it so constantly, you can take the gravity and the validity away of the power of what this is. This is a representation of our Lord and our Savior. Of the reason that we're going to heaven and not hell. We thank you, Jesus. We thank you so much. Would you join me in taking this? And then we have the grape juice. Which is also a representation of him. But it's a representation of his blood. His sacrifice. What he had to go through. The thorns put on his head. The nails being driven through his arms and through his legs. The whipping, the mockery. All those things. And he did it because he loves us. He loves us. So Jesus, we take this in realization that your grace, the grace that we got, cost you everything. And it's not cheap in grace, but it's a grace that costs something. That we were bought at a price. We thank you. Join me. Lord, we lift your name up. And we thank you uh, just for the opportunity for us to come together as a family. Lord, in messages like this, it's so easy for the enemy to try to come in. Uh, we rebuke that in the name of the Lord, that no plan of the enemy would succeed, but Jesus, that the people in here would walk away encouraged, that they would be challenged, 
but through that Jesus, that they would grow in maturity. And because of that maturity, they would lack nothing. Lord, it's all about you. We thank you so much for what you did that day. And we lay down everything. Lord, we rebuke our needs and our wants and give into your wants and to your needs. Light a fire, Lord, right now. Light a fire. Breathe on it, Lord. Let it grow. As the Holy Spirit was given to the apostles, Jesus just breathed. So Jesus, I pray that you would start to breathe on them, that you would start to breathe oxygen on these fires and that they would get bigger and bigger and bigger. And Lord, that they would be able to walk out of this church with a burning fire, with flames that couldn't be controlled. I pray for opportunities for these people in this room that you would open doors so they could talk about you. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you. Amen.